and Made for Love, a Catholic storytelling podcast from the USCCB about real people living out the call to love. Twice a month, host Sarah Perla cuts together episodes on topics ranging from dating as a Catholic to what happens when families experience a loss due to suicide. Check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you're getting this podcast. Pope Francis, Peanuts, um, My Penicillin, Peanut. Growing up. Um, <laughs> Pencils, um, Patricia, Penguins, Penguins. She's going to move that <laughs> mic so far away from you. I already mentally prepared myself for it. Yeah. Pope Francis picked a pack of pickled peppers. Here we go. I do I do miss this. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. We're back! <laughs> I missed you guys. And it I mean, feels so good. I was seeing you guys every day throughout the summer, mostly, yeah, but, but I, I miss being in this space. Yeah, and I feel like and I don't know as much about your lives without the consolations and desolations where we're forced to like <laughs> fill our souls each week. So. And I have been very much looking forward to sitting around having a drink because we didn't do any of that over the summer. Oh, definitely not. That's true. <laughs> yes, so that's actually a great segue. Yes, what are we drinking, Zach? Well, I, I, we were trying to drink the drink of the summer, which were White Claws. Ashley had some trouble at Whole Foods. Yeah. It was not related to her having her identification this <laughs> they time. They didn't even ID me. <laughs> wow, never know what's going to happen. Uh, so instead of White Claw, the spiked seltzer that's taken the... the Country by Storm. We're drinking an <laughs> off-brand version of that or a differently branded version of that. I Wild, think it's a fancy brand version of yeah, that. Yeah, it is Whole Foods. Wild Basin, <laughs> boozy, boozy sparkling water, black raspberry flavor. It, yeah, sounds delicious. Right. I'm excited to try this. All right. Cheers, guys. Welcome cheers. back. Great cheers. to be back. Yeah. Yeah, that's refreshing. That's Tasty. really good. That's what makes the White Claws so good yeah. or the Spike Seltzers. They're all so good. Yep. Refreshing. So who are we talking to this week, Olga? So we are very excited to be bringing you our first guest of the season, which is Malcolm Gladwell, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the host of Revisionist History, which is a podcast that where he interprets um, something from the past, whether it's a specific event in history or a specific person or idea. Or yeah. rather, reinterprets. Reinterprets, correct. Yes. Right. And you might know Malcolm from his books, um, like Blink and Tipping Point are like super famous still. Um, but on this part of the podcast, he digs into thinking like a Jesuit which I found very interesting. It's not like, he's not just like giving you a tour of Jesuit history. He's looking at problems like doping and baseball and police shootings through a Jesuit lens. So it's unexpected. Yeah, it was nice because I think we don't often hear from people who aren't already like in the Jesuit circle right, who haven't right. drank the Jesuit Kool-Aid talk about what they love about the Jesuits. And so it was nice to hear an outside perspective talk about what he really likes about them. So it's a great interview coming up. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. First, Pope Francis is going to create 13 new cardinals in October, including three Jesuits. Three? This was, I was like, what? That, three? Yeah. And also, no Americans. So no, nope. not anyone we know. 
And this is pretty important because besides electing who the next pope will be, this shows who gets a seat at many of the high-level meetings and discussions that happen at the Vatican. And, you know, it impacts the church on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and as he's done in the past, Pope Francis, with these choices, is kind of shifting power in the church away from Europe and the United States um, to the rest of the global church. Um, and this is another example of that, for sure. And there is a great... Uh, segment on this that is in your podcast feeds already under Inside the Vatican. And if you haven't subscribed to that and you're listening to this, I don't know what you're doing. So (laughs) for more on the new Cardinals Inside the Vatican this week with Colleen Dully and Gerard O'Connell. What's next, Olga? So in some more Pope Francis news, this past weekend, he released a new statement calling on world leaders to act on the climate emergency. In this statement, he called on world leaders to act, particularly in the upcoming UN Climate Action Summit, which is going to focus on the implementation of the Paris Agreements. Right. And this is happening against the backdrop of um, the Amazon fires, which have kind of captured the globe's attention on, on the problem of deforestation um, and the and the fate of, you know, the most biologically diverse place on the planet where the church is going to be meeting or is going to be talking about this October. Right. And the Amazon forest itself, which has been burning, is it provides like 6% of the world's oxygen. And it's super important to slowing climate change. So there is this like confluence of the, this is not the first time that the Pope has talked about climate change, or the importance of caring for the environment. But it feels like there's this moment where a lot of things are coming together. And it was important to see him put his voice out right. there. So as Ashley mentioned, next month, the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region will be meeting in Rome throughout the month of October. Right. And so a synod is basically a high level gathering of bishops to discuss a certain issue that the pope cares about. So he called this two years ago. um, And in the lead up to the synod, uh, a lot of the discussion has been centered on this question of whether they might allow married priests in this region because there are remote villages in the Amazon where people might not see a priest or get to celebrate the Eucharist for months at a time. So there's this idea that maybe you could ordain older men in the community um, who have proven good character to be um, priests and to minister uh, to you know these far reaches of the Amazon. Um, but the working document and what they're actually going to discuss is much wider than that. They're, they are talking about climate change and deforestation um, and, you know, the human rights of indigenous people in the Amazon region. So I'm glad it seems like the between like the fires in the Amazon, the climate summit and this meeting coming all at the same time, maybe that discussion will be broken open. A little right, bit right. It, it just serves as a really great wake up call that married priests will not be the biggest priority at the synod. What's next, Zach? So pivoting uh, to the United States a little bit with some uh, national news. The Sisters of St. Joseph have donated 25 acres of land for an ambitious stormwater management and flood control project in New Orleans. Right. So the sister's mother house was first flooded by Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and then gutted by a fire the following year. And so they've been trying to decide what to do with this property. Um, and they could have sold it for like two to four million dollars for like housing developments. Um, but which is, they, a, which is a, an important thing because they need money to care for their aging congregation because a lot of religious orders um there are these nuns that have put in work through over the years, and now as they're getting older, their healthcare needs are and their costs are going to go up dramatically. Right, right. And Sister Pat Bergen, who is the former congregational leader of the Sisters of St. Joseph, said that, you know, they sat with this and prayed with this for some time because they wanted to do something that would not just serve their own community, but also the people of New Orleans, just as their order had done for so many years. I mean, it's just another example of how nuns are 
heroes of the church in so many instances. And we talk a lot about how the church is, you know, one of the largest landholders in the world and that's, they can do a lot of good with that. Um, And it was a a great example of seeing them be good stewards of that resource. What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, More news from the South. A Catholic school is going to be donating a lot of their uh, books this um, fall. (laughs) Not land, but (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Okay. So a priest at a Catholic school in Tennessee has decided to remove all of the Harry Potter books from their library, citing that they contain actual curses and spells that could, you know, conjure evil spirits. So donating to the trash is what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Got it. Um, So the priest said uh, the principal in charge of the school uh, said that he talked to uh, exorcists who gave him this advice and that was their recommendation that Mm -hmm. they be removed from the school. Um, As a group of people that grew up with Harry Potter in a lot of ways, I think we all had strong opinions on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Olga, what was your reaction to the Harry Potter gate of 2019. <laughs> I really like that name. Um, honestly, for me, on a personal level, I grew up reading the Harry Potter books. The first Harry Potter book was the one that I read in fifth grade, and I've never read anything in my life as quickly as I read that book. And it was just such a part of my upbringing, and you know, it helped me to really solidify my love of literature. So when I see things like this, I'm like, so many kids are going to be deprived of if they don't have these books. But at the same time, my fiance grew up in a very Pentecostal home and he was not allowed to read any of the Harry Potter books. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So while I don't agree with the sentiment, I do understand that a lot of Christians do have this idea. Right. And I guess it was even before I was a religious person in any sense of the word. I feel like the Harry Potter books were responsible for shaping my moral imagination. And I would like to think for the better, right? I think Mm -hmm. I learned a lot of Christian ideals and virtues from these characters in these books that I love. Yeah, that's kind of the reaction I had is like, I do, there are, there seems to be a lot of Christian allegory in the Harry Potter books. And not that it's as like great of literature as Lord of the Rings, but we don't see people getting like as upset about like the dark forces of Sauron or whatever in Lord of the Rings the way that people do about Harry Potter and I just don't get it. It seems like another kind of Christian epic. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the real fear is because I also Mm -hmm. want to try and not totally dismiss the people who find these as you were saying, Olga, uh, have this perspective on the book. So what what is the real fear here? Because I'm not I'm not an exorcist, right? And you know, I don't really doubt the reality of evil and the need of exorcist in the church. Um, So I'm not really sure what's the right way to attack this, but more importantly, why are we having this conversation now <laughs> right? in year of our Lord 2019 <laughs> when I feel like this comes up every like, I, but I haven't seen a story about this in a long time. So mm-hmm. it, it was just kind of odd to be in the news again. Anyway, I'm sure Harry Potter books are, uh, sales are skyrocketing because this is the best way to get kids to read it is to tell them they can't. Yep. What's next, Olga? So shifting gears a little bit, we do our best to keep you guys updated on any news that comes out in the sex abuse crisis. And there's a new update that's coming out of Mississippi. A settlement was reached between Franciscans in the Mississippi Delta and alleged victims of clerical sexual abuse. And this has raised a lot of questions about the role of race and poverty in the way that the church has handled this crisis. Yeah, this report was harrowing to read. Um, So there's three three men, uh, African-American men, two brothers and one of their cousins who were all targeted for abuse um, in the mid and late 90s um, at their Catholic school. One of them reported that abuse back in the 90s, and there was never really a full investigation. And then two of the other men 
reported the abuse about two years ago and then just in 2019 reached these settlements, which were pretty problematic. Uh, Yeah, it's worth noting because um, the church has uh, a standard of banning uh, NDAs in the sex abuse settlements and they were forced to sign NDAs, meaning they couldn't talk to anyone about this. Right. Right. And they were only they were only given offered fifteen thousand dollars. And in other cases, like the average payout has been like over one million dollars for victims. Right. And these men feel that they were specifically treated differently because of their race and because of their poverty. And, you know, as Ashley mentioned, it is really harrowing to kind of see this. And I think what especially stood out for me for this story is that I feel we haven't really seen a lot of people of color kind of centered when we talk about the crisis. And just to see the kind of the role that their race played in something as something like the settlements. It was just really disheartening to read about this. Yeah. And that was happening in 2019. These were not settlements reached, you know, and before 2002 mm-hmm. when this all came out. Um, or even before 2018 when yeah, this all came out. This came Again. out after 2018. And like whose idea was it that it would be OK to have this like secret settlement um, and just try to sweep it under the rug. It's an important reminder. We've got a lot of questions we still have to ask in the church to fully heal from this. Yeah. What's next, Zach? So our last story comes from Seattle. Um, and there's a lot of parts of the story. So we're going to just try and go through the facts first. Um, uh, in late August, the Associated Press published a story about the final days of Robert Fuller, who ended his life by medically assisted suicide on May 10th. Um, there is a photo that accompanied this profile that showed Mr. Fuller receiving a blessing from a Catholic priest who vested was vested in mass. As a disclaimer, before we get into the details of the story, uh, the priest in question is a Jesuit and he um, knows members of um, America's staff pretty well. Um, No one on Jesuitical has any connection to him. Right, right. And the photo spread across social media, leading to a lot of attacks on the priest for allegedly condoning assisted suicide. Yeah. uh, The Archdiocese of Seattle released a statement saying that the priest in question, uh, Father Quentin DuPont, did not know of Mr. Fuller's intention to kill himself um, until after he gave the blessing. Um, So Father DuPont is not the regular pastor at this parish. He just fills in like once a month or so. Yeah, he's he's got other duties that he's assigned to, and this is his supply job. Yeah. So this is all happening, and then there is this uh, narr- this sort of narrative happening in Catholic media that was centered around uh, whether or not Father Dupont knew about it. Right. So some Catholic media organizations started like they went through the Mr. Fuller's Facebook posts and saw that it seemed like he had gotten the blessing of a Jesuit that was not named. And so there's kind of like this demonization of Mm -hmm. Father DuPont um, based on kind of a lot of misleading information. Right. And in an interview with America, Father DuPont said that he was absolutely unaware of Mr. Fuller's intention to kill himself. And he had very limited knowledge about Mr. Fuller's situation prior to the blessing. And I quote, I did what I thought was pastorally expedient with the knowledge that I had. And it turns out that I did not have key pieces of the story. Otherwise, I would have reacted completely differently. So I guess one of the first things that struck me was I I found I found the story really, really sad in the sense that I think this AP profile was meant to show like this very positive, like, look at this man who was able to control the end of his life. And what I read in the story was this really sad case where uh, Mr. Full had 
previously tried to commit suicide or attempt suicide twice in his life. And yet under these laws was still allowed to ask for assisted suicide. And that was how he died eventually. And I'm not sure where the church, no one's really sure where the church was and, you know, walking him through that because the details are still kind of unclear. Yeah. Now the, the statements from the archdiocese did say that um, the parish of this church, when he learned of Mr. Fuller's Fuller's intentions, um, he spoke to him and tried to, you know, he talked to him about the dignity of life and tried to get him to change his mind. Um, but in the end, he he was going to allow him to have a Catholic funeral um, because he wanted to, you know, have people who loved this man be able to mourn together and to, to celebrate his life um, in the context of a Catholic funeral. Yeah. And I, I also thought this was interesting for a number of reasons. It sort of showed that Father Quentin DuPont might not know about this prominent parishioner who um, was going through this. It says a lot about what priesthood and parish life in Mm -hmm. America in 2019 is like, where you could have a situation like this. Right. And kind of just getting a little bit away from the specifics that we just laid out in what is, you know, as Zach mentioned, it is a sad case and it is really confusing. It's also important to ask another question. You know, what responsibilities does a priest have when, you know, they learn that a parishioner is facing an illness and might consider to taking his or her life? You know, I think it's a very difficult situation that has the potential to become even more frequent, you know? Yeah, especially with all these changing laws and even... You know, stepping beyond that to a larger point, I thought this raised a question of what kind of church do do we want? You know, there are going to be people who are making decisions that are out of line with what the church wants, what the church teaches, what the his church community wants and teaches. And there are going to be instances where priests and pastors are seen interacting with those people and talking to those people and photographed with those people. Yeah. And if they can't do that without this it turning into a question of whether or not that person approved of what they're doing, I, I mean, the pastoral responsibilities are going to be complicated. And, you know, this was a question Jesus was asked a lot, too. You know, he's the one who dines with the sinners. Yeah. It really brought me back to when I was reporting a feature on families who had um, lost loved ones to suicide. And it was not that long ago that the church denied Catholic funerals to people who had um, lost their lives like that. Um, And talking to these families, it was it was it was so important to them how the church responded in in those very tragic moments um, after they lost a loved one. Um, And I know this is kind of different, but at the same time, it's it is someone losing their life in a way that the church thinks is sinful. And I, 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 it's hard for me to see the difference there in terms of like the support you're going to provide to their families, the people who love this person, the person who's mourning. And, you know, at a Catholic funeral, you're not you're not like putting a stamp on this that like, oh, this person's in heaven. You're you're praying for their soul. So, like, why would you deny that to someone even if you know that they did something sinful? This is a really sad case, and it's clearly left so many of us with a lot of questions about what the responsibility of the church should be in moments like these. Joining us via Skype is Malcolm Gladwell, a journalist, author, and the host of the podcast, Revisionist History. Welcome to Jesuitical, Malcolm. 
It's my pleasure. Yeah, we're super excited. So one of the reasons we wanted you on is because on your podcast, Revisionist History, you recorded a three-part series on the moral reasoning of the Jesuit order. What got you interested in the Jesuits? I, you know, I can't remember. I think it's because I just remember running across some references to the revival of casuistry in the field of medical ethics and Mm. thinking that was really interesting and then just doing some reading on it. I think that's how it started. But I don't, like I said, I, you know, I, my method of coming up with the ideas is very chaotic. What makes the the Jesuits and I mean, maybe Catholicism in particular, you describe yourself as a wannabe Catholic. What sort of does it for you? Well, it's the, you know, it's the intellectual rigor of it. That side of religious faith is always the side that's most appealing to me. And the idea that you would have had 500 years of serious, hardcore intellectual activity going on, that's catnip to someone like me. So yeah. And so so you mentioned casistry. Um, and in your podcast, you talk about the fact that um, we are very bad at figuring out novel problems. And you think that the way that Jesuits think about problems, um, especially novel problems, uh, could help our current moment. So first, can you just tell us what casistry is? Well, I feel odd telling a number of people who work for the Jesuitical podcast, what casuistry is. Well, tell our listeners, not us. Okay, yes. uh, casuistry is a, a method of moral reasoning pioneered by Jesuit thinkers, beginning with St. Ignatius 500 years ago, which proceeds on a case-by-case basis, which says that uh, as opposed to starting approaching a problem with a set of broad principles, one should approach a problem on its own, start with the specifics, and then move from the specifics to a more general understanding of, of how one makes sense of that particular problem. So it's a way of, um, of considering new kinds of problems on their own merits. And this is in contrast to, to what? Well, normally one would assume that a, uh, an intellectual approach to something was, a, was an approach that began with a set of principles, with a set of uh, general rules or philosophy that guided the way one investigated the problem at hand. Some, something like thou shalt never lie or some yes. general... Yes, God. or, you know, in the medical context where casuistry has become, um, in recent years, uh, uh, has, become, has come back into vogue um, in, the, in the realm of medical ethics, it means that you don't approach a patient with a set of principles like... I am interested in supporting this patient's autonomy, or Mm. I am interested in respecting this patient's privacy. What you do is you say, before I pursue any of those broader general goals, I'm going to find out exactly what is going on in the life and heart and mind of the patient. Um, Because maybe those general principles won't help me at all in understanding the nature of the problem that I'm facing. Yeah, it brings to mind one of Pope Francis's more famous quotes or ways of operating is always to see the person. Um, And that's been, I think, really refreshing for a lot of people who are used to pronouncements being handed down from on high at the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Um, And Pope Francis, the first Jesuit pope, has really has said that what you do is you you take the person in front of you and you love them um, and you proceed with mercy and understanding. Um, So, yeah. 
Yes, to speak of another Jesuit, you interview our colleague uh, James Martin, Father James Martin, on your first podcast. Um, he's our he's our colleague, and he's familiar to listeners. But where did you see him using casuistry? Well, I give the example in my first podcast of he was applying it to the way the church approaches um, the gay and lesbian community, and I know that's been a cause that that he has taken up in recent years. And he just told me the story of how. He was concerned after the Pulse nightclub shooting, a shooting in a gay and lesbian nightclub in Orlando a few years ago, that the church had not responded. The church leadership had not responded appropriately. And he used a kind of very casuitical argument, I thought, to explain why the church could be far more welcoming to that particular community, even though there is an explicit teaching of the church, um, which is not necessarily... Um, entirely open to that community. So he was, basically he was saying, what do you do with a group of people who are, who may well be Catholics, who might fall afoul of certain teachings of the church? And by using a casuistical argument, he said, there's a very clear moral direction we can take here, where we can reach out to and console this community without in any way contradicting our, our position within church teaching. Um, I just thought it was a very, uh, what's the right word? It was a, it was on one, on one hand, and this, this word is going to sound, it's not meant to sound derogatory. It was very clever, but it was more than clever. It was using cleverness as a route to, um, I thought, uh, a morally profound conclusion. Right. To be pastoral in the end, right? Yes. That it was, and I loved that. I just thought there was a kind of beautiful illustration of how we can reach out to people who may who we may have differences with and still meet them face to face. This actually brings up a, a good point is that Jesuits are often disliked or distrusted for this sort of way of proceeding, um, like Jesuitical, despite being our podcast name, um, is sometimes seen as a very sort of derogatory term. Um, why do you think that is? And are there other risks in using this type of moral reasoning? Well, it, you know, it, it, it got a bad name in the 17th century, which is a hilarious thing to say, but um, <laughs> that I, there was a, a feeling among some Catholic theologians that the Jesuits were taking, it, taking this kind of reasoning too far and using it to justify, if you're just going to be cynical and clever, uh, casuistry is, can be something that can be used to justify nearly anything. Sure. Like any kind of moral reasoning, it can be abused. And there was a feeling, rightly or wrongly, that it was being abused in that era. And so it fell into kind of disrepute. Um, it does require some degree of moral rigor on the part of the person practicing it. Because if you think about it, if you're going to say, let's set our general principles aside and proceed on a case-by-case basis, that is calling for a certain kind of responsibility on the part of the, of the moral practitioner. Sure. Yeah, I, that was one thing that struck me in the podcast is kind of like this very stark um, line you draw between casuistry and moral principles. Because I don't, I don't think Father James Martin would agree that he's not working from any core principles when he's when he's making that argument. Is it really one or the other? I think I think most Jesuit priests would say they they do have fundamental principles that they that they keep and aren't are not ready to disregard just because it doesn't work in some case study. Yeah, I, I think the key thing is not the you're not abandoning your principles. It is mm-hmm. the order in which you you call your principles into 
your reasoning process. So instead of starting with your principles and then looking at the case in front of you, you look at your case in front of you and then proceed to your principles. You know, I mentioned that the ethicists might be concerned with things like autonomy or privacy. It isn't that you abandon your interest in autonomy and privacy. It's that if you begin by investigating the case in question, you may learn that those general considerations are simply not relevant in this instance. You know, there's a, there was a medical story that I didn't tell in that podcast, which I think illustrates this in a very lovely way. It was about a, a doctor told me the story about a patient he'd had who had terminal breast cancer. And he went to see her and was asking her questions. And they were asking her questions in the service of things like, do you have a living will? Do you want to do, you want to do not resuscitate order? All the kind of standard questions that arise out of medical ethics. And as he listened to her, one, he asked her the question, does your family know that you're in the hospital? Mm. And the woman said, yes, my son knows. And then when she said that, she started to cry. And then he went back and he followed up and said, when was the last time you talked to your son? And she said, seven years ago. Wow. The reason he told me that story was he said, the minute he heard that, he realized all of this concern about do not resuscitate or what have you was, although it was important, it was beside the point. The woman, the issue in her life, the moral issue in her life, was that she had had a family breach that she wanted desperately to heal before she died. And his moral responsibility as her physician was to find the son. Yeah. Right. Nowhere was finding the son in the kind of formal principles of medical ethics. It was something that arose out of his ability to carefully listen to what she was going through. Do you have any, what was like your absolute, the most fascinating thing that you learned about the Jesuits during your research that maybe didn't make it into the show? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, as a general rule, I try not to keep the interesting things out of the show. <laughs> that's a good good start, yeah. <laughs> or, or did anything surprise you the most, I guess? Yeah, I didn't know about... The idea that the Jesuit approach was a function of the fact that in the early days of the order, they were the ones essentially on the road. Mm-hmm. was super interesting, and it suggested in a certain way, it's why I think there's thinking is so relevant today, because they were the ones grappling with real modernity. When you're in the 16th century, which is the age of discovery, which we're still in, by the way, um, and you're the one who's out encountering a system or a people or a problem that's never been encountered before, and this is what you come up with, um, that's super interesting, because now I feel like this is what our world is like, is we're constantly encountering problems that um, we're ill-equipped to deal with. Yeah, it's almost an argument against micromanagement because they were so far away from management that they had to have a way of thinking to deal with what's in front of them. Right. Did um, did your research into the Jesuits uh, change your perception of the church at all or your own religious perspective? Well, uh, it, it did. I mean, I was already, I am favorably disposed. Yeah, you describe yourself as a wannabe Catholic. Did you, do you now even want to be a Catholic even more? Slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I'm favorably disposed towards institutionalized religion. So I come from a very religious background. Um, And I have been uh, a little alarmed recently that I feel like some of the struggles that the church has gone through with various scandals have permitted people to engage in what I think is fairly called anti-Catholic bigotry. Um, Or people have dismissed the church 
um, or reduce the church to this single issue. I have forgotten that, that the Catholic Church is a very, very large, very, very uh, long-lived, very, very multifaceted institution. And anything that big is going to have problems from time to time, but that doesn't, that ought not to um, cancel all the good that it does. So I thought it was just a useful exercise in reminding people that um, this is a large and wonderful and powerful church. Um, and uh, there are other things going on. Um, we shouldn't focus solely on uh, this, uh, the particular problem the church is going through now. That's tough. I mean, even for us as Catholic journalists to remember, I think sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. too. So thank you for, for everything that you've shared with us and for the podcast and for showing the Jesuits in such a nice light. I don't know. It reminded me of why I love Yeah, they disorder. take a lot of heat. <laughs> yeah, and it really did, I mean, brought me sort of back to first principles to yeah. uh, use another Jesuit term. Totally. Mm-hmm. But Malcolm, we've got one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, <laughs> here's my answer. Um, and I sadly, I do not know the man's name, but I'll tell you who he was. I was having a discussion recently with a woman named Roseanne Haggerty. She's worked on behalf of the homeless for 30 or 40 years. And she's done more interesting, she's done more to kind of solve homelessness around America than almost anyone else. She's a really extraordinary person. And I was interviewing her and she was telling me about, it's a very, when her, she was in her early 20s, she began working with a, a Catholic charity group in New York City. And she, Roseanne, one of the things that she has been, one of the things she's helped do is to redefine the battle against homelessness as being, and the first principle in, the, in really ending homelessness is, is housing first, that you can't solve all the problems that the homeless have unless you first house them, as opposed to making housing the reward for pinning up your life. She says that's backwards, and she's proven over and over again this is that you house them first, and then they can solve the problems of their life. Anyway, this is all a long way of saying, when she was very, very young, in her early 20s, she learned this principle of housing first from a, uh, a Catholic, um, and he was the, I don't know what his exact title was, but he was the head of a large diocese somewhere in New York, and he had a, a huge amount of excess housing that belonged to the diocese. And in the early 80s, at the height of the homeless problem in New York, he basically turned over all of this church property to housing the homeless. And she said, at the time, it was an extraordinarily brave and radical thing to do. And it was, it opened people's eyes to this first fundamental principle of how to fight homelessness. And she just thought this guy was, I don't think he's gotten, like I said, I don't even know his name. I've forgotten his name. I don't think he's gotten a lot of great press or people remember him. I don't no idea. He was just a it was just someone back then who took an extraordinarily brave and pioneering stand that has had implications for how we think about this problem that had been rippling for 40 years. Um, anyway, I sort of think, I don't know, doesn't that sound like someone who should be canonized? It sounds it like it to yep. me. And I mean, there are certainly a number of saints whose names are known only to God. So, I mean, they are not alone in that regard. Yep. So, Malcolm. Thank you so much for talking with us today. The podcast is Revisionist History, um, so you can get that anywhere podcasts are. Is there anything else you want to plug right now? You have a book coming out, yes? I have a book coming out called Talking to Strangers, which comes out um, on September 10th. 
Great. All right. Well, thank you for talking to us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Bye. Made for Love, a Catholic storytelling podcast from the USCCB about real people living out the call to love. Twice a month, host Sarah Perla cuts together episodes on topics ranging from dating as a Catholic to when families experience a loss due to suicide. Check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you are getting this podcast. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? So wanted to highlight uh, our Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Jesuitical. Um, it's a place for uh, Jesuitical listeners and supporters and friends to get together and talk about uh, things that, you know, stories that we were talking about on the show, interviews and other stuff that, you know, we don't cover on the show, but maybe we should. So it was a happening place this summer. Yeah. And it was such a good thing, especially during the summer when we're on break. I felt felt like it like kept me connected with the Jesuitical community, which I I, I kind of missed. Yeah, it was, it was, it was your fix. For yeah. the, it was um, one of my favorite threads, though, was someone asked, uh, respond in GIF form with your favorite uh, movie or TV priest uh, or, or none, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were like over 100 comments and GIFs that were replied to this thread, except all of them were wrong who did not put Father <laughs> Mulcahy from MASH. Uh, so you should go check that out and you should go check out the Facebook group. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a consolation today. One of my best friends, I've known him for, wow, 13 years, got married last month. And it was just such a beautiful space to be in. He is Chinese, so there were a lot of tea ceremonies and then like the traditional reception that we all know. And the consolation for me was just being in that space with him and his wife and seeing them share in their love and start their marriage together. Because just throughout my own wedding planning process, I have can very easily get swept up in the idea that everything that you do in the planning process is superficial. And all of these little things like the flowers and the cake are completely unnecessary and not significant in any way but just seeing all of it come together for his marriage and just the love that he had for this woman was just really consoling to see god fully present in that space and just to be able to be a part of it um was really rewarding for me and just a reminder that marriage is about you and the person you love and the community that you invite into that space with you um so thank you will kwan for being my first (laughs) consolation of the jesuitical season oh that's great Yep. What do you got, Ashley? Uh, I have a desolation. So uh, we're coming back from Labor Day weekend, and the Monday of Labor Day weekend has like always been my second favorite day of the year after Christmas Eve. Um, mm. <laughs> not okay. Christmas, Christmas Eve. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so my family, for the past like I think thirty nine years, has hosted a uh, Labor Day block party at our house, um, and my parents were out of town this weekend so it fell on me and my sister to host which was great and fun but then I found myself during the night not really wanting not really engaging with anyone there which is like really a great thing to do because these are my like neighbors who I don't see much anymore now that I'm in New York um but I just like kept myself busy I kept like moving food and cleaning things and like not talking to anyone and I kind of realized that it was I didn't want to talk to people because I was just like dreading the question of like so are you seeing anyone? So what's new in New York? Like, what's good? Like, how does this work? And like, I just like felt like I had 
not progressed since last year and I didn't want to like say nope still single <laughs> like no I mean I work I haven't got a promotion I'm just still doing my job um and I so I was just like dreading that conversation and so like the desolation was listening to this voice that said like my worth as a person is dependent on like me progressing and like meeting these like life benchmarks at the correct time and listening to that voice even like knowing I was listening to that voice and like recognizing that was not God. In the moment, I couldn't break myself out of it. And that kept me from like being present to the people I love. And I know love me despite like me being <laughs> single and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so that was my desolation. But there were babies there. So that helped. I got to just like hold them and <laughs> feel better. <laughs> Baby, yeah, babies aren't going to ask those they questions. They don't judge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're real easy audiences. <laughs> what do you have, Zach? Uh, this weekend, I. Got. I had a consolation. Experienced a consolation. I was home in the great state of Ohio for uh, my fiance Amanda's bridal shower, uh, which is um, a primarily female focused event. <laughs> um, so I was not present for the bridal shower, and I sort of went into it thinking that I wasn't going to get a ton out of this weekend. Um, but then I was in. I showed up for the end of it because a lot of my family's there too, and. I was just sort of like blown away because I got to see all my family, her family, the community, friends just sort of love her and see her like, like appreciate that love and express gratitude for that love. And I'm also getting loved through that because we're, you know, coming together in the sacrament. And it was just this little foretaste of the way that God works in the grace in this marriage and it's an important thing because we're like inside 40 days now. So this basically I've lent to go until I get married. <laughs> um, and it's been really helpful and consoling to meditate on how God loves us and how we express God's love and receive God's love in our marriage. And so that was my consolation this weekend was the bridal shower. That's beautiful. Are you also going to be fasting during these 40 days to fit into your tux? Exactly. <laughs> I was hoping you'd pick up on that other Lenten metaphor. And the amount of money we're spending does feel like almsgiving, kind of, but not to the same causes, obviously. <laughs> All right, get us out of here, Ashley. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Isabel Senecal. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out to these great reviews from over the summer from... Genzing Maker, Lorian Phoenix, KS Grosh, Aaron 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 XOXO, Cantor Lou, Irish Kate, New Catholic. Thank you. Thank you for leaving us a review. And Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. Production help from Isabel Senechelle and Tucker Redding. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>